Well, over the summer, we've been reminded of the biblical qualifications of an elder, and we have heard from both of the men that we're placing before you. Tonight, we're going to vote on them, and then we're going to end with the, the Lord's Supper. And when you look at the New Testament, the anatomy of the church is, is very clear. A local church has a plurality of, of men, called sometimes called pastors, sometimes called bishops in the King James, or overseers, and sometimes called elders. But there's, there's a plurality of them. The church has deacons serving it. And I think if you look at the New Testament, the church is congregational in, in nature, meaning that it governs its own affairs. It, there's no outside hierarchy that it's, that it's subject to. And if you break that down, we, we said that you could call that the visible leaders, sometimes called elders, overseers, pastors, the exemplary servers, better known as deacons. Everyone's called to serve as a Christian, but there are some that are set apart as models and then there's the maturing ministers. You're all ministers, we're all part of the same body, and we're to be growing in Christ. And God has uniquely placed each of those, arranged them in, in His church to, to govern it. And tonight I'm going to remind you where elders come from, and then we'll end with the role that you play in that. So where do you get a pastor or or an elder. Now, depending on who you ask that to or what book you read, you might get all kinds of different answers. I mean, are they made by seminaries like cars and you just kind of order one? Do you, you put a, a, an ad out there, a want ads, uh, elder for, for the church, and, and then where do you, where do you put that uh, ad? I mean, can they appoint themselves? Is there a small group of men in the congregation that meet in a dark room somewhere and select who, who those individuals might be? Well, uh, the Lord Jesus himself gave his expectations for those that are going to care for his sheep. I mean, when you think about it, you have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. I mean, three books in the New Testament are dedicated, at least partially, to this topic because it's not a haphazard placement. I mean, if Jesus is going to shed his blood for his church, then surely he's not going to be willy-nilly about who he places in the pulpit or, or shepherding or leading the, the, the flock of God. He doesn't just place leaders in the church that he died for, like calling a temp agency and just say, send me whoever you, 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 you've got down there. I've got some filing that needs to be done. Now, he's a very active process. He's very active in the process, in particular... In, in placement. Jesus calls them, the Spirit equips them, and then he prepares them, just like he did the, the, the disciples. And so the church of Jesus Christ has visible leaders that are set apart to lead, feed, and shepherd the flock. And, and I think if you look at the Bible as a, as a whole, the New Testament as a whole, we, all of these passages that we're going to look at tonight, we've looked at before, but we've kind of condensed them together. We'll call them the four components to the to the origin of, of elders, the origin of the visible leaders in, in the church. And I think that there are four specific scriptures that you could go to that are representative. First of all, they're, they're gifts from Christ to his, to his church. You remember my pastor saying that, um, tongue-in-cheek. Someone asked him, who do you think you are, God's gift to the church? He says, well, as a matter of fact, I am. 
And then you're there equipped by the Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12. You know that passage well. It's the spiritual gifts passage. Then they're trained by other elders. That's 2 Timothy 2.2. And then they're acknowledged by the church. They're affirmed by, by you. They're set before you and you acknowledge them. You, we do that by voting. And we'll do that tonight. And you go to Acts 13. You can go to a number of other places. Let's start with this first one. So you should open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. I know this is a very familiar passage. But elders are gifts from Christ to His church. In fact, they're a portion of His promise. The promise that He made in Matthew 16... And then they're also part of his design for the church. What do you think about whenever you read Matthew 16 when the Lord makes this declarative statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. What, what naturally comes to your mind is probably what naturally comes to my mind. That Jesus is saying he's going to save people and he's going to add them to the church. And clearly that's, surely that, that's, that's the case. But it goes much further than just saving people and placing them in the church. It, it includes all that, that he promises to, to do. And you remember Acts 1.8, the, at Pentecost the church was born, the, the atonement was, was made and accepted by the Father, the burial and resurrection and ascension back into glory has, had taken place and the, the commission to go make disciples had been given and then at Pentecost the moment when the Spirit came to specifically empower and inaugurate the, the, the church, Acts 1.8 describes that, but you'll receive power, and after that the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Acts 2.4 says, after Peter's witness, he preaches at Pentecost, that day we're, we're added about 3,000 souls. So when those 3,000 souls were added, was Jesus done with His work? And you say, no, He wasn't done with His work. There are many other people to be saved that would be added to the church, and you would be right. But Jesus is not even done with those 3,000 souls. Because once He saves them, then He sanctifies them, He equips them, He matures them, which is what Ephesians 4 is talking about. So everyone who's been saved since the day of Pentecost becomes part of the ecclesia, the the, the church of Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit. I mean, that's Ecclesiology 101. But, but everything the Lord does from that moment on is to fulfill that, that promise, including granting the gifts of apostles and prophets and evangelists and, and pastors and teachers, or you could also see elders, to, to equip it. They're part of His design. That's what Ephesians 4 details for us. It's part of fulfilling His promise. And, Jesus gave, gift, gave gifts to His church in order to, to build it. Look, if you would, at verse 1, Ephesians 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk worthy, uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for, for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace. So Paul starts with his typical encouragement to live in light of the, the truth that he just revealed. Chapters 1 through 3. We don't have time to go there, but it just lays out how the Trinity has been involved in your salvation. You're were, you were dead in your sin, now you've been made alive, and 
and Jesus in making you alive, building his church with Jews and, and Gentiles. And now in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, walk or live your life in a manner worthy of all of that. But look at verse 4. He goes further. He adds a further motivation by reminding us that we're part of Christ's promise to build his church. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in the hope of, of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and, and in all. We're part of one body and one in the same spirit places us there. But we have a, an individual purpose that's part of that design. Verse 7, but to each one of us, so he goes from this one body, one spirit, now to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now notice it's Christ's gift. It's singular. It's, it's the emphasis on Jesus giving something to his church. So there's one body and the same grace, but unique gifts that come from Christ and they're given to His church. That's the measure of Christ's gift. And watch how He shifts topics from the grace given to each one of us to the gifts that Christ gives to His church. Verse 8, Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave, now he comes back to his topic of giving. He, that's Christ, gave some apostles and some prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers or pastor teachers. Verses 8 through 10 describes how he bestowed those gifts on the church. He, he earned the right to do that he, when he ascended on, on high. It's a quote from Psalm 68, which is a hymn written by David who conquered Jerusalem and then ascended Mount Zion, which is Mount Moriah. And when a king would go out to conquer in battle, he would bring the spoils and the captive prisoners to his home country and parade them through the city in triumph. And Paul says when Jesus finished... His battle on earth, he returned to glory with, with the spoils that, that he had won. And do you know who those spoils are? They're you, if you're a believer. You and I are what Jesus Christ won on the cross. I think he got ripped off, don't you? Well, Jesus doesn't, it, as shocking as, as that is. It says he went to the cross with joy for you. He despised the shame of the cross, but he did it... He did it with joy. You and I were once citizens of Satan's kingdom, but, but now we're part of Christ's kingdom because He came for us. And through the cross, Jesus conquered death and sin and Satan, and then He triumphantly returned to the Father and sat down on the right hand, having finished His work, and He takes His captives with Him. Ephesians 2 says that spiritually... We're already there. We've been seated in the heavenlies in, in Christ. We'll be there physically one day. But he also distributes the treasure throughout his kingdom. 
So that's what verse 8 says. He gave gifts to men. So he descended to the earth. What's verse 9 is talking about? He defeated Satan and won prisoners. Then he frees them and gives them his gifts to his church to serve it. So he might fill all things because Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire universe because of his work. And then this verse that you know well in verse 11 actually defines some of those gifts that Christ gave to his church. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor teachers or pastors and teachers. And, and then in verse 12, the verse you also know well is the purpose that he gave them for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. So they're to pour out their gifts on you, to equip you. And then the goal of that work is what verses 13 and 14 is talking about. The reason that you're being equipped is so that you can serve, so you can bring the rest of the body to maturity and protection from error. And when you put all of that together, it says Jesus gave various ministers or gifts to his church to fulfill his purpose to build it. It didn't end with salvation. And the apostles and prophets laid the foundation, and then the missionary evangelists and pastors and teachers are still building on that foundation until he returns. And that's why we have elders or pastors or shepherds, teachers in the church. But that's not all. Those gifts that Christ gives are also equipped. They're equipped by the Spirit. They're equipped by the Spirit for God's church and by God's choosing. Uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, another passage you know well. We're obviously skipping across the high parts of these because we've been through them. Jesus gives leaders as gifts to His church. And then the Spirit grants the gifting to those who will serve in this capacity. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. It's a passage that you know is one about spiritual gifts. But I want to show you how it applies to, to elders in, in the church. In chapter 12 is really an in-depth biology lesson. You don't have to write all this down, but, but it's fascinating when you look at it, you zoom out and look at it as a whole. Verses 1 through 11 says Christ has empowered His church. Verses 12 through 20, He's unified it. Verses 21 through 27, he's diversified his church. And then 28 through 31, he's structured his church. And then in verse 28, he rules over it. And all of that is through the Spirit's work. So the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the focus of chapter 12. Look if you would at verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries. And the same Lord, their variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all person. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, he starts with the big picture first. The Spirit, the Lord, and God, meaning the Father, the whole Trinity is part of this work. But as I said, the Spirit's work is, is the focus. And verse 7 makes that plain. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, no matter what gift is given, what that means is, whatever spiritual gift is given, it's an evidence of the Spirit's work. They are the manifestation of the Spirit. The, the manifest or, they manifest Him or display Him. 
That's how you recognize the Holy Spirit's work, not flailing around on the floor or falling out or being out of control or living in some mystical altered state. The way that you recognize the, the, the Spirit's work is when someone exercises their spiritual gift. When someone ministers to you in mercy or encouragement, when you're particularly helped by listening to a sermon, that's the evidence of the Spirit. That's how He manifests Himself, through those, through those spiritual gifts. So spiritual gifts are not natural talents or skills or, or abilities. They're supernaturally, supernaturally bestowed by the, by the Spirit of God. And, and when they're active, when He's, he's displayed. I'm not a pastor because I worked in the business world and I know how to lead people. I don't know if I did that well then or... And in my humanness, I surely don't do that well now. Anyone who follows that idea that your spiritual gift or you, know, you put people in as an elder or whatever in the church because of their natural abilities is going to end up shipwrecked because it, it, it takes a supernatural work. It's a supernatural work, I should say, that takes a supernatural gifting. But notice what else verse 7 says. So the Spirit is manifested through, through these gifts, and it's for the common good. Common good for who or, or what? It's the church. There are two basic categories of spiritual gifts that are listed in verses 8 through 11. They're speaking gifts, and they are serving gifts. So they're word-based gifts, and they're are nonverbal gifts. So prophecy and knowledge and wisdom and teaching and exhortation, that, those would all be speaking gifts. And helps and giving and mercy and faith and discernment and leadership, they would all be serving gifts. If you're saved, you have one or more of these gifts, which are granted by the Spirit at salvation and therefore the common good of the church. What's the common good of the church? Well, Ephesians 4 told us it's the maturity of the church. It's for the church to be, to be matured, to be built up in, in, into Christ. That's the common, uh, common good. And so elders are just one part of that. They, they equip the saints so then the saints can use their gift given by the Spirit to, for the common good, and that common good is to, to mature the, the body. So elders, elder for the good or maturity of the church. Deacons serve for the good or maturity of the church. You exhibit mercy for the maturity of the church. And God knows exactly what His church needs. It's, it's for His church and it's also by His choosing. And the rest of this chapter is just littered with, with just the sovereignty of the Spirit in bestowing gifts. Verse 11, He distributes it as He wills. Verse 18, God placed as He desires. Verse 24, God composed the body. Verse 26, God appoints. So the Spirit sovereignly and supernaturally equips the visible leaders or the elders that Christ gives to His church. So elders are part of Christ's promise to build His church. He gave them to build His church. And then the Spirit gifts them in order to do that, that work. But then they're also trained by other elders, specifically the current leaders of the church. Turn, turn over to 2 Timothy 2. 
It's another passage you know well. You say, wow, I know all of these passages. That, that's good. You hear them a lot because they're pivotal in understanding how Christ is doing his work, which is building his church, 2 Timothy 2.2. Elders are trained by other elders. What does that mean? It means they recognize their character and then they recommit the truth to them. That's what happens. You want to simplify it. 2 Timothy 2 verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's verse 2. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then he goes on and talks about suffering hardship as a soldier and an athlete and a hardworking farmer. Verse 7, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So if the Spirit calls you and gifts you at salvation, does that mean a man can just start eldering on his own? Just take off? I mean, who identifies them? and Who prepares them? Who trains them? Who sends them? Well, 2 Timothy 2.2 tells us. Timothy was a local church elder, that, and Paul gives instructions to him. He, he provides a pattern for, for all other churches to follow, including ours. And Paul tells Timothy the training and the prepare, preparing of elders in the church is the current elder's responsibility. Timothy, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and then commit what is retained or guarded to other men for ministry. And this instruction is for elders to train other elders, pastors to train pastors that Christ gives and the Spirit equips. So all Christians are to be disciples. And all of you are to be trained. You're to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're all to be deacons to a certain degree, all to be in ministry in, in some way. But, but the elders that, that God calls are or to be prepared for this task. I think 2 Timothy 2.2 makes that abundantly clear. They're to, be, to receive a body of truth. And the current elders are, are to commit this truth to them. There's a particular content. He says, the things that you've heard from me. It's, that's a, a phrase for apostolic doctrine. And he says it's in the presence of many witnesses. It's not Paul's private interpretation. This is the specific teaching, the clear doctrine handed down and once delivered to the saints that Jude chapter 1 verse 3 mentions. It was something that was supported and confirmed by the testimony of other teachers, other witnesses. And it was to be committed to a specific group of people, those who had proven faithful. So they recognized their character, faithful men, faithful in truth and life and character, and it was for a definitive purpose. So they can commit it to others. It was to pass it on. And they were to replicate the approved and tested doctrine to other faithful men who will be able to to do that. Um, Wow, do I really want to get up on my soapbox now? When you hear the word uh, innovative, like a church or a pastor is an innovative guy, that is a bad word if you understand what, what Scripture is actually teaching. 
I, I mean, it, it's not something new. It's something old. It's something eternal. It's not yours to, to play around with. It's, it's something that was committed by Christ to the Apostle Paul, to the Apostles, and then to be committed to, to others. We looked at the qualifications of an elder. We saw, what the, qualifi- we saw the character that, that's required. And we understand that these are, you know, these are marks of direction, not perfection. You follow me around very long, and you'll find out that 1 Timothy 3 is my direction, my desire. You're going to find I'm falling short, just like these men that we placed before you tonight. But out of all of those qualifications, there's one primary skill that's mandated. They must be able to teach. They must be able to handle the, the Word. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus gives the qualifications... And all of them are character-based, except one. They're to be above reproach, a one-woman man, temperate, prudent, respectful, but, but they must be able to teach. It's the only qualification, or the primary qualification, that distinguishes an elder from a deacon. Deacons don't have to be able to teach. It's wonderful if they are, but they don't have to have the gift of teaching. They don't have to be able to, to do what, what elders do. Because preaching and teaching is an overseer's primary task. Whether that's in the pulpit or whether that's somebody's home, in somebody's home, the man of God must be able to go to the Bible and know what it says and then accurately communicate that to, to God's people. If he doesn't have that skill, he cannot and should not be an elder or a missionary for that matter. I mean, it's like being a pitcher and not being able to pitch <laughs> or being a basketball player and not knowing how to dribble. I mean, that's what you do. Being able to teach doesn't mean a skilled orator or put together a PowerPoint like Pastor Farrell does or, or, or be able to, to be a pulpiteer. I mean, there are things about that that you learn and skills that, that, that you develop. This is saying that, that they must not be a Bible hack. They must be skilled in the Word. They must be able to refute error and teach sound doctrine, which means they have to know what sound doctrine is before they start eldering because it's the only tool that we have. It's the only thing that transforms people or saves people. It's the Bible. So where do men learn how to handle the Word or what the Word says or to refute error? Well, Paul says right here in 2 Timothy 2, current elders mentor them, train them. So if you're ever serious about becoming a pastor or you think that that's some way that God's gifted you or a missionary or any other word-based task in the church, you need to place yourself under godly elders and learn long before you, you speak. And all of that is where we'll end tonight. So number four, finally they're, they're acknowledged by the church and that's why you're here this evening. Elders are acknowledged by the church body that they serve, which is what we're doing this evening. So while Christ gives leaders as gifts and the Spirit equips them and other elders train them, the final way we identify them is through the church body. The church body um, sets them apart and the church body submits to them. So when does someone become an elder in the church? There's all kinds of men in this church that 
you could probably say, wow, they meet 1 Timothy 3. I see all of these marks of faithfulness in their lives. There's all kinds of people that are in this church that have the, even gave the gift of teaching that could do that. So are they official elders in the, in the church? When does one cross that threshold to where they are an, a recognized elder in the, in the congregation? Is it when uh, the other elders appoint him? When they've completed seminary, when they start working full-time in the church, you can just throw out everything that you've ever learned from John Maxwell. I'm not for burning books, but his I would probably make an exception when it comes with leadership. All of that's wonderful worldly information if you're leading a business, but it has nothing to do with the church. The simplest way to answer when does someone become an elder in the church is when the church body publicly recognizes them as an elder and then submits to them. That's when it officially happens. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening before that. Uh, they're saved, they're, they're, they're given as a gift, they're, they're given a spiritual gift, they're equipped, trained. But not until the church body recognizes them and then begins to submit to them are they an elder. The Bible calls it the laying on of hands. It means the appointing or commissioning of someone to a specific office or task. Acts 6, there were seven men that were chosen. They weren't elders. They weren't even called deacons then, but they did deacon type of work. And they were set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. Acts 6, 6. Acts 13, the Spirit chose Barnabas and and Paul for the church, from the church in Antioch, and it says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off for a specific task. They were publicly recognized for a specific task. Paul told Timothy not to neglect the gift that was given to him by, by prophecy when the, the council of elders, the presbytery, laid their hands on him in 1 Timothy 4.14. 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul warns Timothy, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in, in, the, in publicly setting someone before the, the church. And it's interesting, in every case, prayerful, prayerful care was exercised. Jesus, actually, when Jesus chose the 12 disciples in Luke 6, 12-13, he prayed the, the night before. The apostles followed that same pattern, and they set apart new men. As I said, they prayed in Acts 6, and prayed in church prayed and fasted in Acts 13. So it's a serious thing. So we take it seriously, and that involves the whole church body acknowledging them. So, so the current elders recognize their character. They recognize faithful men. Oh, these men have marks of faithfulness in them. and They seem to have the gifts that, that could potentially be, be worthy of of an elder, and then they begin to pour in them, begin to commit the word to them, begin to, to, to train them. So their first, their gifting is recognized. And then finally, they're set apart before the whole body. So to be appointed to the office of an elder, I think it implies a man has met the biblical qualifications, he's been gifted by the Spirit, he's been recognized by the current elders, and finally, he's been publicly recognized by the, by the church as, as one who holds that, that office. So who are they appointed over? They're appointed over the body. And so when the current elders believe a man's ready, he's selected and placed before you. As to be one recognized as 
as a gift that Christ has given to, to give to his church. And then once that happens, then, then the congregation submits to them. You've heard the definition of a, check the defi- your, your definition of a leader. Um, one of the ways that you do that, if you think you're a leader, you should look behind you to see if anybody's following. Because if nobody's following, you might need to adjust your definition. <laughs> So once you recognize them and you set them apart, then the church body begins to to submit to them. That's what Hebrews 13 says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Don't, Don't be hard to pastor. Don't be hard to elder. Because then they have to spend all of their time trying to to do it and persevere in it, and then that's less energy that can be given to to your sanctification. And um, tonight and next Sunday is this final and crucial step. You submit to them, submit to Christ through through them, and you acknowledge that that they're elders even in your your vote tonight. So you're not submitting to a man. Or, or a position, submitting to Christ, mediating his rule through his word and, and his gifts, because there, there's really no authority in a man or, or in a position in a church. The only authority that anyone has is, is the word of God, and he speaks as he speaks the, the word of Christ. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to pray. Then it'll feel very normal. We have reading for minutes and our finance report, but then we have this one balloted item this evening, and I'll go over that whenever we, we get there. But let me pray, and then I'll invite reading of our, our minutes. Father, I do thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for all of the, the men who have poured into my life. Think about mentioning this morning of my salvation and just meditating on that and thinking that I didn't know the difference between the Old and the New Testament whenever I got saved. And Lord, I was petrified to speak in front of people, so paralyzed by fear of man. This is the last thing in the world I would have wanted to do, but I'm so thankful for your call and the Spirit's gifting and the equipping that has happened through so many different people. And I'm so thankful for this church. And um, I pray tonight, even as we, we hear how you have brought in new members or how you've provided through the finances and even the vote this evening, just be glorified. Your will be done, whatever it is. It's your agenda, not ours. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.